you are new, we were glad that you are here this morning. Uh, I don't want to take away from anything that Sherry said, but just simply as an extension, as she mentioned, uh, my wife and I, Erin, are actually going through the process of being licensed for foster care. Um, And just as a testimony to what has happened with that and what Sherry was saying, uh, I was one of the people who walked into this idea of fostering and said, there's no way I could do that. There's no way I'm going to let a child come into our home, fall in love with that child, and then have to send them back to someone that I don't trust. And I believe that the Lord has constantly worked on my heart. And just simply as a means of confession, um, my wife and I, as many uh, in our generation and many in our country do, have unfortunately been dealing with infertility. We have the desire for a family, but it just hasn't happened yet. And so in that pain, we have had to ask the question, Lord, what do you want us to do with this? How do we navigate for this? And I think what it took is it took the Lord understanding that even in my pain, there was pain in some other child out there. And that through pain and through suffering, which we will talk a little bit more in our series, God has a way of mending pain and suffering into glorious revelation of his uh, peace working and healing power. And so we are trusting and believing that even in our pain, that through our beautiful desire, we will be able to love on a child and see them in the way that God sees them as much as God sees us, children of God who have felt pain as well in our own. And so I encourage you, as Sherry said, regardless of what your marital status is, regardless if you are married or single, have a conversation with Sherry afterwards. Really let the Lord work on your heart on this. Uh, One of the things a lot of people say when it comes to things like this is just, it's not my calling. Sometimes it is your calling, you just don't want to answer the phone. And so I want to encourage you to please, please go see Sherry afterwards and just simply ask, whether if it's not necessarily fostering, how can I help? How can I help a child? So um, along with that, it's been really great just to see um, what we're doing with Seven Homes, but also what we did last week. For those of you who participated in the trunk or treat, um, for those who dressed up, um, those who handed out candy, uh, it was a blessing just to see our church kind of make our first initial mark into our community, uh, to open our doors, to open uh, our time uh, to the kids and to the families. And so we had a great turnout. Uh, We had way more people than I expected. So um, I appreciate the Lord testing my own reservations and showing how he can work. So thank you to everyone who did that and was a part of that. So let's transition into our time of teaching. Uh, We have been going through the book of Daniel. So if you are just joining us uh, over the last two weeks, we have been discussing uh, Daniel, the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, and what's happening in Daniel. And uh, I want to start off our time this morning with just simply a brief recap of what we've been talking about and recapping a little bit of what, excuse me, Spencer shared with us last week. So um, we've been really wrestling with this idea of what does it mean to live in Babylon? What does it mean to live as an exile, what does it mean to be a faithful disciple of Christ in a culture where there are many options of allegiance? So we go back into Daniel and to get some historical context, cultural context, we have to understand the Jewish people, due to their disobedience, both the Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom, so Israel and Judah, are taken out. They're taken into captivity. And they're taken into Babylon, which today would be modern-day Iraq. Um, And it's there that they lament the fact that they are no longer in Jerusalem. Um, They are in great anguish. But as we learned last week, in Jeremiah 29, verse 5 through 7, the prophet tells the people of God to do this. He says, while you're in this foreign land, he says, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, 
Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, prospers, excuse me, you too will prosper. So again, God is telling the people that you are to settle down into this culture. Yes, you're in exile. Yes, this is not what you wanted. Yes, there is a sense of purification and obedience and discipline that is happening here. But I have a command for you. He also warns them while they are in Babylon. He says, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Everyone loves that verse, right? Declares the Lord, plans to prosper and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. One of the things that we've talked about living in exile, living in Babylon, is the fact that our culture is dominated by narratives. It's dominated by a sense of meaning. And so when we read the first half of Jeremiah, he's saying, go ahead, plant yourself there, bloom where I have planted you, and seek the prosperity of where you are. But on the second half, he says you need to be careful about the reality of the place that you are, understand the influences that are there, but understand that there is a promise to return to Israel. So the ability for them to actually bloom and plant and seek the prosperity is based upon the narrative that there is something better. There's a sense of joy that's going to happen in the years to come. And that is something that they anchor themselves to. And so then we, they ask the question, or what we ask the question is, what does it look like to live faithfully in Babylon? When we talk about our current cultural moment, when we talk about being a disciple of Christ, what does it mean to be faithful to that declaration? What does it mean to live in a foreign land, culturally, religiously, and narrative meeting, and to fulfill the promises and the commission that Jesus gave us when he left this earth? The first thing we have to understand is what is Babylon? When we talk about Babylon, Babylon is representative of mankind's endeavor to make a name for himself. We see this in the Genesis 2 story, right? The Tower of Babel. So the people come together. They say, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build this tower into the heavens, right? And ultimately what it is, it is this idea that we can have the kingdom without the king. We can have progress without presence. In fact, that is one of the biggest cultural things that we deal with is that many in our culture, many of those that may not follow Jesus, they want the things of Jesus. They want peace. They want prosperity. They want justice. But to call Jesus Lord is foreign to them. It is the antithesis of what they believe in human progress. So we've been going through this term of what does it mean to be a creative minority? And asking the question, what is a creative minority? So a creative minority comes from John Tyson, who pulled it from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And Pastor John Tyson says that a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. A creative minority seeks to function in a dominant culture for the purpose of being a redeeming factor within it. Being a creative minority is asking the question, how can we be a subversive, stubbornly um, active participant of, of culture without being colonized by it? 
How can we insulate, not necessarily insulate, but how can we reinforce the ideas in the, the identity that God has given us to flourish, even in the midst of things around us that would say otherwise? And we learned last week that as we've learned through the book of Daniel and Daniel's influence in the culture of Babylon, in his desire not to compromise, that in that there was a place where he was able to work within culture and not necessarily separate from it. We've been talking about the difference between separatism and syncretism. Separatism, which some people would call the Benedictine option, which is we're going to go into our own place, we're going to create our own community, and we're going to push the world out. Or syncretism, we're going to take the things of the world, and we're going to simply be passive towards it, not question it, maybe even embrace it. So that brings us to our scripture today. So if you have a Bible, I would turn to Daniel 3, verses 1 through 16. Um, If you don't have a physical Bible, we would love to be able to give you one. We have some here. But in Daniel 3, 1 through 16. So in Daniel 3, the writer writes, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Six cubits high, six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Just a pause. Dura is, is the highest point in the city in Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. One more pause. Why would he repeat all of those names again? The reality is most of those people are coming from conquered lands. They have been just like Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, coming from a foreign land, and they are now a part of the Babylonian empire. So again, that's part of just the context of what's going on here. So they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of the gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty, They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace." Then what God would be able to rescue, then what God would be able to rescue from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we were thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so Many of you have heard the story before. Uh, There will be no chocolate bunnies, part of my sermon this morning. (laughs) Veggie tail throwback. I do not have any felt boards for you, so sorry about that as well, too. And many of you know that the story ends with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing, being thrown into the fire, um, and them not burning up. 
In fact, there being a fourth person in the furnace, who some believe is Christ, some believe it was an angel that protected them. This morning, I'm not going to go that far into the story. I want to stop right here. And I want to talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's resolve in this situation. So we need to back up. Let's get some spiritual, uh, scriptural context into what's going on here. So the question is, why did Nebuchadnezzar erect a statue? Why is it important that they bow down to this statue? It was common for cultures to add other gods into the pantheon of their own gods. So they'd go, some of you know this, they'd go, they'd conquer a land, they'd take all the artifacts out of the temples, and they would bring it back to them. And in some ways, this was a way of consolidating power for the king. This is a way of saying that our gods are better than your gods, or I'm better than your gods. My power is better than what you have and what you've been worshiping. There is scholarly debate on the connection of Daniel 3 and Daniel 2. So real quick, Daniel 2, um, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He's trying, it's troubling him. He can't figure out what's going on with the dream. And so he asked his advisors, the uh, sorcerers, astrologers to come and say, hey, uh, I've been having this really crazy dream and it's really troubling me and I need you to interpret it for me. And so the astrologers and the sorcerers are like, okay, so what's the dream? And Nebuchadnezzar says this, well, I can't tell you the dream. Because if I tell you the dream, then you might give me an interpretation that's just based upon you saving your own skin. And you don't want me to kill you. So basically it was like Nebuchadnezzar saying, I need you to tell me what's wrong without knowing what's wrong. And so they're not able to do it. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He kills them. He executes them. So the guy that's executing these men goes to Daniel and says, look, Nebuchadnezzar's lost his rocker, which he usually does all the way up until about chapter 6 of Daniel. And he says, "Um, he's killing all these people. He's going to ask you to come interpret this dream. So Daniel prays. And God gives him a vision of what's happening in this dream. And part of it is a statue. And in that statue, it represents many different countries, different nations, and and whatnot. And so he's able to interpret the dream, and because he's able to interpret the dream, Daniel's elevated. And because he's elevated, he asks that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego take on the place of provincial administrators for Babylon. So this is why those three are elevated. And this also plays into chapter 3 of... the building of the statue. Again, at Daniel's request of interpreting the dream, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as provincial ministers of Babylon. However, there is a position argued that Nebuchadnezzar is so infatuated with his own ego that he erects a statue as a misinterpretation of the statue in his dream. So the statue was a means of identifying Nebuchadnezzar as a participant in the divine realm. And it blended the desire of man to be like God. We go back to the Tower of Babel, right? To be more like God. It was a way of consolidating his power. So the question is, what did this statue look like? And I actually have a picture. Probably looks something like this. Though the the descriptions in the scripture doesn't necessarily match this. Um, This is most likely what the statue looked like. And it probably looked with the face of Nebuchadnezzar. So... The other question is, though, why are they accusing the Jews? So everyone's, everyone's bowing down to this, this statue. And there's some people in the king's court that are accusing the Jews of not, of, of, they're pointing them out. Like, why are they not bowing down? Don't you see that they're not bowing down? And so what motivates this? Why are they so concerned about why the Jews are not bowing down? And the accusation is likely motivated by professional envy. The Babylonians would have viewed the rapid advancement of Daniel and his friends in chapter 2, 48 and 49 as a slight. They were angry that the group of captives, foreigners, were promoted over them. The same feelings of animosity motivate the the presidents and satraps to kill Daniel in chapter 6 when we talk about Daniel in the lion's den. But the reality is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resolved not to bow down to the statue even in the midst of the pressures around them. The question is why? 
Why in the face of death would they not bow down? We can turn back into the earlier books of the Old Testament to understand the context of where these three men are coming from. As Jews, as Hebrew people, they would have known the commands of God. In Leviticus 9.4, God says, Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. He also said, You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's interesting to know also in Exodus 23 through 6, this actually will point to Exodus 34, 4 through 7, which was a paragraph, a line that the Jewish people would all memorize. It was the, the, uh, the source of meaning, of reminder of who God is, that their God is Yahweh. And so this verse says, as he says, he says, so Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets. He's on Sinai. He's chiseled out the tablets like the first ones went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. Again, proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. The name of God was Yahweh, and they resolved not to depart from that. There was an internal meaning, narrative, purpose that they were standing in. And it was through this, the fact that their God is eternal, that there are ramifications for disobedience to him. The reality is they were not worried about their reputation. They were worried about obedience. Obedience is what held them. So this is great, right? Seeing these three guys, it's a great story. They're resolving. But what does that mean for us today? What does that for mean for us as, as disciples of Christ, as those who believe that God is eternal, that Yahweh is the only name? Well, first we have to ask the question, what is an idol? Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Holy Hope, Only Hope That Matters, says this about idols. When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something you're actually worshiping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Therefore, you find that despite all the efforts to forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside. You may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without? It may be that until some inordinate desire is identified and confronted, you will not be able to master your anger. Many of us have heard the stories about idols. We've asked the question, what is an idol? If you've grown up in church long enough, many have asked you, what is your idol? And understanding the idols of your heart. But I think it's important to try to contextualize and understand what are the source of idols? And what exactly are idols? Again, an idol is the thing we worship, but it is not an icon. An icon is an expression of what we worship. So I wanted to share some examples of the difference between an icon, an expression of what we worship, and an idol, the very thing that we do worship. So here's my first example. So that's an icon, right? Many of us grew up loving Carolina, loving state, Duke. I'm sure there's no one in here has problems when these people lose, right? Right? I don't have a problem with that whatsoever, except for the next slide. 
So, I find it very ironic that I'm preaching on uh, idolatry during football season. Okay? So, if you want to know, that's me leaping for joy after Georgia sealed the national championship on the far left. Um, That's me crying when the Braves won the World Series last year. And that's me crying when Georgia won the national championship. So, as someone putting himself out there vulnerably, there are many things in life that we would say, okay, this isn't evil, right? But it does say something, okay? Why would a grown man be crying over a baseball in a football game? The reality is that icons point to something deeper going on in the person and why that is important to us. It's because I grew up in the state of Georgia. It's because that's a representative of growing up in South Georgia. That is a representative of Saturdays with my dad and connecting with him. That is the nostalgia remembering being six or seven years old and watching the Braves win the World Series in 1995. There is fidelity. There is a sense of meaning and identity connected to that. When we think about icons and what kind of emotional response we get to them, whether they succeed or fail us, how we respond emotionally says something about the icon and what it's connected to and how we worship that thing. I'm going to kind of uh, give another example as well, too. And this is a football reference, so please bear with me. So Auburn, obviously I grew up in SEC country, so that's that's where I I reside in sports. Auburn this this past week fired their football coach, okay? When you football coaches in college sign a contract, all right, that money is guaranteed. So whether they're there or not there, They're going to get that money. Auburn has not had a great season. And the boosters have been calling the AD. We don't like what's going on there. Okay? We need to get rid of this guy. Okay? So what do they have to do? They have to buy out his contract. Problem is, schools don't set aside a budget to pay a coach not to coach for them anymore. Brian's arson was fired. Because enough boosters and alumnus donated the money to buy out his contract. He was owed $15 million in the first seven days. We're going to talk about this. People who who were giving that money is they were connecting their identity and their pride to Auburn University. It's not a slight against Auburn. There's a lot of schools that do this. But where we spend our money, where we spend our time, is a great indication of what we worship, right? Let's continue on outside of sports realm, okay? Some other examples. Other examples of icons, right? Fashion, right? The quality, right? Lacoste versus American Eagle. They represent something. They represent something deeper. Our desire to want one of the other represents something deeper inside of us. Let's move on to the next one. Politics. Identity. I may have ruffled some feathers with some of these up here, but these are things that we have to talk about. How I identify myself. What I believe. They are representative of something going on deeper in us. They say something about us, but there's also something we have to take into recognition. These are usually bumper stickers, right? I also have to ask the question, when I see a car with this on it, what are my initial notions and thoughts about the person driving the car? How am I placing them and identifying them within my own idolatry of what I believe is right or wrong? Right? It's important to ask these questions deeper when we see these images. We have to ask deeper questions. 
Carl Truman says this. He says, every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. We have to ask deeper questions about what's going on in the world around us. We have to be deep investigators. That's why learning is a part of one of our practices here. Asking more questions, understanding the why behind the icon. So the question is, the next question is, where does power, platform, the ability of these things to sway us flow in our modern age? There are two types of power that we see at play. Hard power and soft power. Hard power is by force, coercion. Someone's holding a gun to your head, you need to do this, right? That's hard power. Soft power is being co-opted. So in the example, hard power, bow to the statue or you will die. Soft power, we learned from earlier, eat from the table. This looks good, right? It's not evil. It's not wrong. But there's power behind it. And that's why Daniel resolves not to eat from the table. Because he understands that that is co-opting. That's an attempt to co-opt his own culture and the own mandates that God has given him. So we have to understand that in life, in our culture, there are some things that don't, are not evil. And we're not being forced to do it. But there is an attractive quality to it that co-ops us, colonizes us, and moves us to a place where there is no return. We have to ask the question, are we submitting to hard power or soft power? So let's continue. I have a little diagram here. When we think of idols, right? We think about the Babylonian Empire. We think about Daniel. We think about like actual physical idols, And many of us realize that that's not necessarily what we deal with today. Yes, there are cultures. I I went on a six-week mission trip to Sri Lanka. It was very formative. Um, And I remember when I was there, uh, Sri Lanka is about 89, 90% Buddhist. And so anywhere we would go, there would be temples and there would be statues. Uh, There was one uh, place we walked into. It was a temple. You walked inside. There was a giant Buddha that was laying on his side or its side. And there was, it was full of people on the ground praying. So yes, there is a place of actual idol worship. But in our context, that looks very different. So this is something that I have thought about. This is a working theory, all right? And these are what I think are the major idols of our day. Identity, expressive individualism, and self-actualization. These are the things that plague us as Americans, as Westerners in our society. Some of you may be looking at that and thinking, okay, I know Maslow's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? uh, Self-actualization is one of those. But again, it's not that that is necessarily wrong. The problem is self-actualization in our current cultural context is anchored to the self and it's anchored to something beyond that is not connected to God. It's not anchored by presence. It's anchored by back to we want to make a name for ourselves without God. A self-actualizer is a person who is living creatively and fully using his or her potentials. It refers to the desire for self-fulfillment, namely to the tendency for him to become actualized in what he is potentially, meaning and fulfillment basically without presence. Self-actualization is fine if it's anchored to the design of God and what he says about us. What plays in that as well is identity. The ability, uh, I'm sorry, individualization. The ability to be oneself, to be self-autonomous, to make choices for one's own self. This is something that in American philosophy we try to pride ourselves on, but we have, we are, we're seeing the cracks in that. 
in how it cultivates tribalism. We see it in expressive individualism, the ability to relate and express one's own experience, that my experience is unique, to affirm my experience. Part of that you'll also see are some small idols that kind of hover around this bigger idol, which is power, sex, money, and comfort. Power is the ability to affect decisions, to create, and to institute change based upon our own terms. Money is basically having what others don't, having an ability to have the freedom to make those choices, particularly in a capitalistic society. Sex is the ability to, comfort, to be comfortable in one's own body via the pleasure and affirmation from another person. These are the things that rule us. These are the things and the modes in which we, uh, we uh, give ourselves over to that we have not sometimes resolved to stand against. But the reality is these idols are not done so simply as idols. So, and what I mean by that is we don't have these standing up saying this is, this is the actual idol that we're bowing down. The reality is idols have to have a place of worship. There has to be a place that we can gather and we can worship around these ideas. And so that's why we have temples. And there are four main temples in our modern day that we deal with. Career, politics, social, and the market. Those are the places that we go to worship these idols. It's where we make sacrifice It's what we give our fidelity to. It's what we give our time to. So in career, we find self-worth through achievement. The ability to make money. Politics, the ability to affect change and create a world that's in our image and how we feel the world should function. The ability to express how the world should function and to build upon our own narrative of what human flourishing should look like. Social, which I would include religion in social, is the ability to connect with a transcendent meaning. It includes family and religion. Faith can be a place where we may execute our our theological idols. Faith can also be colonized by the culture. We have a mandate, a commission, to protect the sanctity of what this place means. Too often, and I'm going to get a little bit on my soapbox, so I apologize. Too often churches are either too far into separatism or too far into syncretism without understanding and losing sight of what the commission is. Okay? So we see this in moralism. Moralism is something as followers of Jesus, as Christian people, we are called to, or not called to, that we have to combat. And really what this is, when I think about this difference in, in, as far as faith is concerned, I think of the prodigal son and the obedient son. Okay, Prodigal son, if you know the story right, takes his inheritance, goes and squanders it, enjoys the world, does what he wants to do. Yet there is the obedient son. Prodigal son comes back. He's forgiven. He's given a feast, a festival. Obedient son's outside. He's not a part of the party. Father asks the obedient son, why? Why are you not a part of what's going on in here? And he says, because I've done what I'm supposed to do. I followed all your rules. I gave you honor and respect. Yet you're giving it all to this guy. That's moralism. That's when we think that we are in some sort of hierarchical stage over others through our spiritual practice. And that's something that we have to understand that that is an idol. That is an idol. The other part of that, on the other side, is a syncretism that co-ops the church. So Professor David Wells, Gordon Conwell, in his book, Losing Virtue, he says this. 
He says, much of the church today, especially that part of it, which is evangelical, is in captivity to this idolatry of the self. This is a form of corruption far more profound than the list of infractions that typically pop in our minds when we hear the word sin. We are trying to hold at bay the gnats of small sins while swallowing the camel of self. It is idolatry as pervasive and as spiritually debilitating as were many of the entanglements with pagan religions recounted to us for us in the Old Testament. That this devotion to the self seems not to be that older devotion to a pagan God blinds the church to its own unfaithfulness. The end result, however, is no less devastating because the self no less demanding. It is as powerful an organizing center as any god or goddess in the market. Why do you come to church? Why do you take the time to go to a house church? Do I believe that you can meet God there and that God will heal you and direct you to where you need to go? Yes, absolutely. But far too long, some of us have been so indoctrinated by church as a means of self-fulfillment that we have lost sight of the very religious idols Jesus came to save us from. That's why he's so harsh on the Pharisees. You got so many things right, but you've got so many things wrong at the same time. It's important for us to evaluate where we are and why we do what we do. Lastly, we have the market. This is where I find my identity. This is where I seek affirmation in my success. The market is where we salve the wounds, right? This is where we escape into shopping, entertainment, whatever it may be. It's a place to escape from the troubles and realities of our life. But I think that there is one place of worship that trumps all of those that you deal with every single day. 1436 was a pivotal time in human history, and it is correlated with the year 2007. 1436 was the year that the printing press was invented. 2007 was the year that the iPhone was released. This is the most common place of worship we find ourselves every single day. Because in it contains all four of the places of worship that we talked about. We live in a digital Babylon. The internet is a beautiful thing. Smart phones are, whoop, I got one right here. It's great. I love it. But it's also the source of information. And it's the source of, unfortunately, a lot of bad information. It's a source of bad expression. Now, please, I'm not a Luddite. I don't think that we should go live like the Amish, okay? It's not the thing. It's not what I'm saying here. What I am saying is, we have to be aware just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and as Daniel, about the soft power we carry with each other, with ourselves each day. When the internet was invented, it was this revolutionary thing that was going to keep us connected, right? The problem with the internet is, it is a hero to information. It is an enemy to thought, Justin Gaboni, he wrote Compassion and Conviction, the Anne Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. He's a lawyer. He says this, Christians must be critical thinkers, question the assumptions and conclusions presented to us. We shouldn't simply accept the issues as they've been framed by political parties, ideological tribes, or the media, because these sources usually aren't analyzing the issues from the standard of the gospel. Again, we have to go back to kingdom without the king. It sounds great. I'm I'm for you on it. But it's not, it, it it has no investment in the gospel. It's picking and parting what you like about the gospel and what you don't like about the gospel. 
namely Jesus as the authority. Namely, Jesus saying, you must lay down your life. That's why James is so quick in his book that we have to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to listen so that we have the time to process it, to compare it to what scripture says, to what the Holy Spirit is convicting us of, so that we may speak into it. And if we haven't done those two things, we don't need to speak into it to be able to process these things and understand. This is the reality of the Babylon we live in. And that is why being a creative minority is such an essential component to what we do here at Emmaus, but as we do as individual Christians in our workplace, in our family members, and how we interact with society around us. So I want to challenge you. How do I locate what these idols are? How do I locate what's captured my heart? There's some questions you can ask. Idols can be located in these things, in these questions. First question, how do I spend my time and my money? What prioritizes the thoughts in my head? And where do I spend my money? What are the desires of my heart that causes me to give money to this thing? Where do I receive happiness and pleasure? What are the things that make me happy? What are the things that I enjoy? What are the vehicles that allow me to experience those? And lastly, what takes up the majority of my mental space? And then the biggest question, why? I challenge you this week. I know it seems like a little bit has been of this has been doom and gloom, but it is the reality of the world that we live in. It is the reality of the things that are trying to get your attention. And attention is the economy that we live in. Facebook is free for a reason. Because you are the product. Anything you don't have to pay for it, you are the product. That's where digital capitalism plays into. That's where digital Babylon plays into. Mental capacity. Focusing on the things that would pull us away from the reality of Yahweh being the eternal God and the foundation and anchor of our identity. Idolatry can lead to failure and shame. When our idols fail us, it leaves us in a place of nowhere. Asking, what is the next thing I can reach for? What is the thing that will satisfy me? It can befuddle us into the false god of self. American culture is notorious for this. This idea of self. Yet Jesus said, It is by giving of self that we find joy and happiness. I want to call you as we bow in prayer to just simply ask some of these questions, some of these things that we have been talking about this morning. Whether it may be the icons, whether it may be the political idolatry, the marketplace, career, whatever it may be, what are the things that have captured your heart this morning. I'm going to ask Anderson to come up. I don't know where Anderson's at. Sorry, Anderson. And again, as we pray, I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit, rummage through my, through my heart and my mind. Like going into an addict, right? Sifting out the things that I've been holding on to, the things that I have been carrying Asking, what, why, why did I have such an emotional response to the social media post? Why did I have such a response to this news article? What is it about myself that I'm looking to fulfill without you present there?
Heavenly Father, there are so many things in our society, in our culture that are happening around us, and sometimes it's just very hard to keep up. Lord, there are experiences, there are wounds, there are troubles that we have felt. And in our own confusion, our own desperation to be who you've called us to be, we've reached for things that are not you. Lord, we have decided that there are small trinkets that would fill the God-sized hole in our hearts. And Father, I pray this morning for resolve. Father, I pray for identities that are built up around the name of Yahweh eternal. Father, there's, there's a saying that goes around a lot now, and it's about being on the right side of history. But Father, we know that the right side of history is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. And that's who we pledge our fidelity to. That is who our allegiance is to. Father, your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, as you commanded us to pray. And Father, as we endeavor for that as a community and as followers of Christ, Father, I pray that we would endeavor that within our hearts and our minds. Father, we would take into account where we spend our time, where we spend our money, what takes up the space in our brains. And Father, we would resolve to release it to you. Jesus, we love you. And we just ask that you would empower us with this message. I pray all these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.